Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, and join us for our weekly ramble across the landscape of IT news. We'll discuss a new startup by John Chambers, a BGP security debate, sassy growth, and more. We're sponsored today by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak, and you'll get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak. And stick around after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks about its latest AI ops features for SD-WAN, including network insights, predictive circuit capacity exhaustion, and other features. Let's dive into the news first. Uh, former Cisco CEO John Chambers is funding a new networking startup called Nile. The company has emerged from stealth with $125 million in venture capital funding, including from Chambers' own VC fund. And Nile is going to be led by former Cisco exec Pankaj Patel. Yeah, but what does it do, Drew? Did you... <laughs> That's a great question because <laughs> there's not a lot of detail. I to... There's an awful lot of sort of lot of hype around this. Uh, did you? I went to their website to sort of read. I, I, and uh, yes. wow, there's a lot of bloviation. Let me let me just uh, read you some of it. Right, uh, emerge from South to announce that it's completely redesigned the network and overall operations experience to deliver a more secure, wide and wireless service, defined by an audacious vision to remove human dependence from the management <laughs> of the network. Niles' clean sheet approach to networking does to networking what cloud did to computing and storage by bringing a relentless focus on disruptive simplicity. Nile will forever change how organisations design, acquire, deploy, secure and maintain connectivity. I mean, there's a lot of adjectives <laughs> in there, Drew. A lot of adjectives. Yeah, I believe one of them, I, what jumped out at me was ruthless automation. I don't know why your automation needs to be cool, uh, but uh, that's how they're going. That's like torrid, <laughs> Intel with the word torrid. And uh, here in the UK, torrid basically means sweaty underpants. And, uh, you know, it's not a real good look. I notice Intel starting to wind the back of the use of torrid there for a while. Uh, but, uh, I mean, there's an awful lot of bloviation. And you go to the site to try and understand the solution because I thought I might make some commentary. But there's actually not a whole lot of information about the solution. Um, so, uh, yeah, a few things mm. I think you and I were both able to pick out. One is they're approaching their offering uh, using an as-a-service play. Um, uh, so it's going to provide planning, procurement, and installation of network gear. It'll provide automated monitoring and troubleshooting and handle software updates, patches, and hardware refreshes. And I guess there's going to be Nile sensors that monitor the network and send data to the cloud, but I'm mm. still not sure if Nile is selling me switches and routers or partnering with other people to do that or how the whole network comes together. I'm, there's still yeah. a lot of... Things I am unclear about. Yeah, this is things. pretty typical for a John Chambers project. They don't, uh, you know, bit like if you remember Pensando before this and before this, you know, ACI and other projects that uh, Chambers was involved in. He doesn't like to actually go and tell you too much about them. He's in the background. He has a marketing strategy or he recommends the leaders of these startups uh, to go out and do like Cisco does, which is talk to customers and sell it under NDA and get convince them and find mm -hmm. out you know, what it is that customers, what what messaging resonates, what sort of, what's the maximum price the market will bear and what are the features about the software that they should be prioritizing. Even though they've made the product, they're not necessarily confident that they've actually got it what it, what it is. I saw a photo, there is one image on the website which shows there are selling switches, Nile branded switches and Wi-Fi. So my guess here is that the only way that you can deliver these rather uh, audacious claims <laughs> is to actually own the hardware and go custom. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, we've seen that from Aruba. We saw that from uh, Juniper with its attempts at various things. And Cisco, of course, has always had a very hardware-defined 
rhythm. And the advantage of selling hardware, of course, is that your numbers get very large very quickly. You sell a lot of hardware, mm-hmm. you can make a lot of revenue. Um, but my, my guess would be is that there's a NOS in here which has a bunch of custom features that they're doing which turns it into a uh, observability platform to some extent as well as being able to do the security. Now, we've already seen this. Cisco has been doing this for five or six years now with its campus strategy. So I don't mm-hmm. actually see a need for this product. I don't see that there's a, a need for a hardware-defined startup to come along and do security in the campus. Aruba's got the same thing. And in terms of a relentless focus on disruptive simplicity, I think that's code word for AI ops, but they don't want to say AI ops because I don't know if their AI is all, you know, we don't have any details on that. Did you get the sense of AI right. ops or, you know, like they're doing automated operations? Yeah, I think that's the whole point because they talk about removing the operations burden from the network engineer and that you just, they, they use the term self-driving a lot, which I think, you know, used to be a, a Juniper term, but they have clomped onto it that it's basically a network you don't even have to set up. Yeah. It just kind of operates on its own thanks to uh, data they're collecting and putting into the cloud and analyzing with uh, AI soft bots, I think is what they call yeah. them. I don't so know what a soft really bot is. It doesn't really sound disruptive or innovative. It sounds like pretty much what everybody's going to be doing. Aruba has been big on AI, I mean, to it, me anyway, you know. Yeah, Aruba, uh, Juniper, obviously with Mist has been big into AI first. In Wi-Fi the campus and now, as well. Uh, campus. Right. Yep. Yep. Mm. Yep. Yep. Uh, with their hardware switches too in the campus. Um, and also it seems like it's taking a page from HPE's GreenLake where they're selling you hardware, but on a subscription model. Mm. So you're not necessarily throwing all capital uh, money at it. You do it on a, you know, subscription or license basis. Yeah, but that's so, just. Uh, a, yeah, it sounds like they're borrowing that's just from a trend. Uh, that's not an innovation. Playbooks. That's, you know, if you right. go to VCs and no, say, no, I'm going to yeah. sell them the solution as a one off, they'd laugh at you. You'd have to have, you know, then. right. <laughs> <laughs> Has to be a sub- subscription yeah. these days. Yeah. And I looked at the executive stack. It's basically a bunch of people from Cisco. So the, the it looks like the whole product is developed out of India. All of the technical leads all appear to be of Indian. Uh, in you know that sort of offshoring thing that Cisco went through, and that's where this, some of the best software that Cisco's written has come from. So it's absolutely the right place to be. But that is a very typical model: use the low cost base of you know developing a product in India, and then use the you know the front, the sales front to ship it in a in the USA. It does appear to be only in the US this at this point, as far as I can see. I I came away from my reading with a sense that it's only being pitched in the US. And if they're trying to sell hardware, they may not be able to do hardware maintenance globally. So they're going to focus on the places where they can get traction. They talk about having 50 mm-hmm. customers. Did you see that bit? Ah, 50 plus partners in the time of launch. And they have some customers as well, but they're not wanting to talk about them. So it seems like, you know, all of those execs and the sales team that they know, who all of the executives who used to be like salespeople at different technology companies, they've gone out and rattled the cage of all the different resellers in the industry and said, do you want to be a partner with us? And, you know, like when somebody Mm -hmm. like that rolls up, you say yes, whether you actually do it down the track, whether there's anything to sell, well, who knows? So I'm not so confident about that, but they name Presidio and CBTS, but I noticed that WWWT is missing, so perhaps not. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I just, I'm a bit, you know... Um, 125 million in fundings took four years to get here. There's definitely a gap in the marketplace for campus. Cisco has made huge profits selling campus networking in the last five years. They addressed the fact that the campus was due for an upgrade and there was big money to be made and they told investors that. And then they brought a product to market, uh, that was doing security, you know, doing all the smarts in the hardware. This appears to be mm-hmm. fairly closely a copy of that. And Cisco is doing less, but this, how they're doing it doesn't really matter. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. Uh, I'm not so... 
sure that this is a lay down misere. This feels a bit late to the industry, to the market. Like um, Extreme's already got something in this space. They've got AI ops working. HPE's got one. Juniper's got one. So if he's hoping for an exit to sell this to somebody, I'm not sure who'd want it. Right. The exit strategy besides uh, IPO is difficult on this yeah. one. I, I agree. Especially if you're trying to rock in with new hardware, like, yeah, everybody has already got their own hardware in the networking space. We don't Yeah, we need don't need hardware. another supplier of hardware particularly, but, you know, it's just, in a, but, you know, again, it's this sort of marketing by noise rather than marketing by technology or focus. And they're doing it all behind the scenes, behind closed doors. So it's hard for us to form a solid assessment. So we'll wait and see what happens. Yeah, hopefully we can uh, hear more from the company as they uh, get their legs under them and, and get out to the market and start talking to people because I would like to, to probe and get some more details. Uh, and, you know, never never count out Uncle John. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> well, he's certainly he doing his bit. You know, like he's, he's the shack. <laughs> he's doing he's, his He's bit. the celebrity person in the fronting the company. He's out there, you know, getting on CNBC <laughs> talking up his new startup. Doesn't really say yes. anything, but, you know, he's yes. definitely got the glamour touch for sure. All right, links in the show notes if you want to go uh, see what you can learn for yourself. We'll move on. Uh, the website CTech says Palo Alto Networks is close to a deal to acquire the security startup Apiro for $600 million. Uh, we're reporting on this because it's kind of a slow week. Uh, there hasn't been any other confirmation about this, but we thought it was interesting. <laughs> I can hardly find anything to talk about, to be honest, this week. It was really like a, <laughs> there's no financial announcements. There's no, you know, really uh, any current news been announced this week. My RSS reader is nearly empty. Uh this is, uh, the interesting thing about this is it's, it's basically a rumour and it was only mentioned in Israeli news. I couldn't find anything about it in, the, I guess, the US or the mainstream tech sites. So this really feels like a piece of scuttlebutt uh, wandering around the Israeli startup community to me. What do you think? Yeah, very much could be. And it makes sense given the connections between uh, Palo Alto's founder uh, and Israel. Um and, you know, $600 million really caught my eye because that's a huge amount of money to pay for a startup. But then looking at uh, Palo Alto Network's history, uh, they have spent a lot of money on startups in the past, including uh, more than half a billion dollars for a startup called Demisto back in 2019. Mm. So it's certainly within the realm of possibility for Palo to lay out that kind of money for a startup. Yeah. Um, I, I looked up a here. They're doing something interesting with Cloud Native, which is a nice place for people to be going, uh, security companies to be going looking for growth. Uh, they They look at your... Uh, cloud native software for misconfigurations and security vulnerabilities and, and help plug into your uh, CICD pipeline to get them fixed. Yeah. So, you know, a, a nice idea. And uh, I could see Palo. Yeah, being... it is interesting. I mean, keep in mind, Palo Alto bought acquired Cloudgenics for 420 million, for example. So they're not mm -hmm. shy on yep. spending money, but they're also growing. They are not like, shy. You know, <laughs> if you look at their share price, they are a significant player in the market today. So uh, much bigger than I think most people think. Uh, their market capitalization is 50 billion. So, you know, you figure that Cisco's got a market cap of around $250 billion, I think, at the moment. Uh, sort mm -hmm. of comes and goes mm -hmm. a little bit, you know, as the share prices have all fallen quite a bit, uh, pulled back lately. So Cisco has a market cap of $170 billion. Sorry, they've been quite badly affected more than I knew. Um, so if you think that, you know, on that sort of a basis, Palo Alto is doing much better than Cisco. Um, and so they've got plenty of cash to be able to and to get investors to come aboard and shareholders to say, yeah, we want to go and buy this company and keep our growth going. That's a viable strategy. Whereas if Cisco starts dropping money like this, investors would be saying, but you've got no growth. You keep doing all these acquisitions and you're not growing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes. Cisco, but of course, Cisco's got loads of cash and makes an enormous profit margin and pays out really good dividends. So it's a different sort of stock. So yeah, I, I think Palo Alto would have no problem buying this and, and convincing shareholders that there's value there, but this is just a rumor. So, and I don't, 
think it's anything more than that. But who knows? Not that it matters much really in the big scheme of things. You know, bolstering your cloud native applications to fix security vulnerabilities is something everybody wants, but you also don't want it as a separate feature. You want it as part of your portfolio. We don't want this security environment where there's 300 tools, but you can't work out that none of them are integrated. They're all standalone. So we don't want that. Right. Uh, I will mention that if it, it does work out, um, uh, Apiro has been funded with a $35 million A round. If they get a $600 million buyout, that is a fantastic win for the investors. So. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Maybe six hundred million <laughs> is more aspirational than real, right? <laughs> it's just somebody, somebody hoping, like, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's let's put a number out see there. What see what happens. Let's go fishing. You know, make it sound good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Links in the show notes if you want to read more. Uh, we'll move on. Federal agencies are raising alarms about the security or lack thereof of the BGP protocol. Late reading reports that U.S. government may be hinting at mandates requiring RSPs and tel telecom companies to secure BGP. And as you might guess, these service providers do not want government-mandated security requirements imposed on them. Ha ha! Captain Obvious has entered the room! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, anybody who's involved with networking, like anybody who's listening to this would be BGP, is the, uh, is the equivalent of peanut butter and rubber bands holding the internet together. Um, and, and sort of, but it is interesting that a federal agency is raising the alarm in the U S government, uh, in that it has it really gotten to the point where there is some sort of concern, um, that they feel like they need to do political stuff. Now, there is an interesting thing here. Five years ago, the idea of the U S government getting involved in the internet would have been get out on the internet and you shouldn't be telling me what to do yet. Now everybody's sort of shaking their heads and going, Mm, that seems wise. <laughs> Makes sense. There's always been a push and pull between, you know, hands off and, and more regulation. Uh, and when you speak, it's not just one U.S. agency, it's the U.S. Justice mm. Department, it's the Defense Department. I think it might be the FCC as well. So, you know, big hitters in the U.S. government saying, mm. hey, folks, uh, BGP is a mess. Uh, some serious things are happening with, uh, you know, uh, route hijacking and so on that are significant and dangerous, and we would like you to do something about it. And if you don't, maybe now, we'll step in. So the challenge here, of course, is that BGP um, security is something that has been raised in the various standards bodies for 20, I want to say 20 or 30 years. It's not exactly like a surprise. And various attempts to right. define secure iterations of the BGP protocol have come and gone. Uh, but the one that's most likely to go somewhere is probably BGPSEC. I guess there are others, and I'm not going to get into the details, but... Um, but the basic problem is that if you're going to in do encryption, you have to have a public key infrastructure of some sort and a certificate authority mm -hmm. that issues the certificates around the BGP. And then the question is going to be politically, who runs that? And if you say it's going to be the ITF, there are going to be some people in the world who are going to say, we don't want that to be based in the USA or to Europe, especially with the geopolitical tensions that we've got going on. Um, and it also mm -hmm. has to be said that U.S. telcos really don't like to be being told what to do by the U.S. government. They get really, really yes. stroppy about that because they believe that they're capitalist companies doing this, but, of course, they're completely forgetting that they actually have a social contract with the government. So uh, all of the telco industry is covered by certain legislation and the government realises that telcos are given a monopoly over spectrum or areas to work in and, and so forth. But there is an expectation that they will meet a social contract of providing communications to the citizens of the USA. So there's a tension there between you can't tell us what to do, but we've the, you, there is an expectation of social service that they don't seem to follow up on. But I think also globally, um, if you say, well, I'm not going to do it in the ITF, and that would be not a clever idea, but let's say you're going to go and do it in the ISO, uh, in the UN, you know, with the United Nations, 
And that venue has been, you know, not popular. The US has signaled that it doesn't really want to participate in the UN. It doesn't feel it gets a strong enough say. And certainly the ISO committees around the networking um, have been heavily uh, participated in by China and various of its allies. So you're seeing various Asian countries and also African countries um, work on standards like IPv4+, which is this enhanced secure IPv4, which is really sort of built to support ideas around like the greater firewall of China or the ability for a government to mandate how the network works. And so I don't believe that Europe and the US would want to see BGP security mandated from the United Nations. So where does that leave you? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. So I, I think it's probably not the best idea for the US government to say, we just decided that, you know, it's going to be BGPSEC or RPKI or manners, the mutual agreed norms for routing security. I think that should be an industry decision. I don't mm. mind the US government starting to apply a little pressure and say, you got to do something. Yeah. Pick one. But the industry is um, not going to, uh, doesn't want to do anything. They don't. Of course they don't. No, they don't want to take on the additional operational yeah. costs. Yeah. It's, it's, it's complicated to set up a, you know, a PKI mm. and to ha have to work with a certificate authority and make sure that, you know, your certs are valid and being mm. signed and all that. But it's also, frankly, I think necessary at this point, given. But maybe this yes, is just a part of a decade long or multi-decade saying like, okay, now we really have to do something. And you just keep it, you know, chipping right. away at it and eventually, you know, that this, that puts yes. some momentum behind it. I mean, keep in mind that implementing things, you know, some sort of BGP security will cause resources to increase. And that means that a lot of networking devices in the internet would have to be pulled out or, you know, upgraded. And telcos really don't like that, um, you know, <laughs> not just because of the increasing number of, you know, route, you know, route entries in the table, but adding sec further increases the requirements for RAM and, and holding certificates and things like that. So sure. a lot of those yep. companies are going to push back and say, you're making us pay money to do this, so you should pay us to upgrade all of our network. That's going to be unpopular <laughs> too, right? So yeah. It will, it will. But, uh, you know, there are, there are levers that can be pulled, you know, tax breaks or whatever to protect our infrastructure or, you know, I, I don't know. They, but the, the industry and the government could actually work together to get this fixed, and yeah. I, I think they should, and I think... Uh, particularly when you start to bring in the Defense Department, um, then things are yeah. getting serious. I, I think this is, if they can sustain the effort year on year, bring the European governments around and line up behind it, so make it a NATO type thing, you know, where you enlist the whole of the European and the US and then start to bring in, you know, various other nations around the world, then eventually the momentum will build. It has to be a political solution, I think. I don't think the technologists, uh, any of the telcos are going to do it out of the goodness of their hearts because they have no goodness in their hearts, but, you know. There has to be political yeah. pressure. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be a political solution, but there has to be political yeah. pressure with the threat of we'll tell you what to do if you don't get it together yourself. So that's a good you know, threat. I like yeah, that. It, it, it is. It's very, it's it's, it's a, it can yeah, be effective, and and hopefully it will be. <laughs> right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV is online technical training to help you start or grow your IT career. For instance, cybersecurity, more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles are out there and you can become a CyberSec Pro with online training from IT Pro TV. If security is not your thing, that's no problem. IT Pro TV has you covered with all sorts of courses across the IT spectrum from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. 
There are more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. Instructors are live every day with shows going studio to web in just 24 hours. And courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role, so you can find whatever you're looking for easily. You can also learn from wherever you're at on whatever platform you like. Uh, you can stream IT Pro TV's courses live and on-demand from anywhere via Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak for 30% off all plans. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak to get 30% off all plans. We thank IT Pro TV for being a sponsor. Back to the news. The Secure Access Service Edge, or SASE market, grew 30% in the second quarter of 2022. That is according to the research firm Del Oro Group. Um, I... What what really jumped out at me in reading this press release isn't the growth that's you know sort of expected given all the hype around uh, SASE and SD WAN and, and cloud delivery security. Uh, Delora is dividing SASE into several categories. There's security SASE or SSE. There's networking SASE or what we used to call SD WAN and unified SASE, which apparently integrates SD WAN and SSE. And my head is spinning. I don't I don't know where I that's, am anymore. That's a, that's a bit crazy, really. I guess what they're doing there is that vendors are trying to say, oh no, we're not like this. We're like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, there's a case to be made that, you know, there is an SD-WAN that does connectivity. There is an SD-WAN that is security plus some connectivity. And then we're seeing the emergence of companies like Graphian and Alkira, which are doing networking as abstractions and there's security in there. So they're like this network as a service or cloud networking, if you, you know, for not networking of clouds, but networking with a cloud-like you know, flexible shared infrastructure type stuff. And I guess they're trying to reflect that. But at the end of the day, if I was an enterprise reading this report, I might be a little baffled about understanding that. (laughs) I'd be entirely baffled. (laughs) It it feels to me like, you know, all the tech companies want to be buzzword compliant. And so this feels like it's handing out, everybody gets a ribbon. Okay, you're not technically sassy, but you're networking sassy. So you get to call yourself networking sassy and you're security sassy, but you don't have the SD-WAN piece, but we'll call you security sassy. Oh, you've yeah. got both your unified sassy. It just, it becomes useless at this point as any kind of definition. Yeah, right? I, I suspect the vendors so. have been pitching something at Deloro and they've, uh, the analyst involved or the, uh, has actually sort of collapsed under the pressure of the, the you know, um, <laughs> at the end of the day, these analyst reports are always come down to really just one person and their opinions and perspectives. And in theory, they're good perspectives, but it it is a single person dependency, usually one or two um, things. And so you always have to be a little bit careful and say, have some sort of basis on which when you read these reports to say, ah, this doesn't quite make sense. I don't think there's much to be gained here in terms of fragmenting the SD-WAN, SASE, SSE, cloud as a, you know, cloud networking into separate uh-huh. sections. Because I think you know, as Russ White likes to say a lot of the time, there's only one type, one network, and it happens in different places. So it's all the same network. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but, you know, I also want to respect that Deloro is trying to differentiate the different vendors and represent their strengths in certain places. So maybe there's something there. Hard to know without, you know, reaching it. Right. We'd like to see the full report, but it's behind a yeah. paywall. So, But interesting, Next. I think the interesting part here is that SASE grew 30% off a low base. That's pretty good. Grew thirty, right? Which is also yeah, which is why we also see all the vendors wanting to brand a sassy because they want to capture some of that. Yeah, we see a lot of that in in that growth. Yeah. 
All right, a little bit of space networking. A group of satellite operators have asked the U.S. Federal Communications Commission for more time to get decommissioned satellites out of low Earth orbit. The FCC recently proposed a rule that would give satellite operators five years to get retired equipment out of orbit as opposed to the current 25-year rule. Yeah, this is interesting. Space debris is a massive problem and, and one that's getting ever more complicated as there's now so much debris from previous, from older space flights just moving around in various orders including some of the mm-hmm. very earliest satellites that we set up, they're still there in their orbits. They were never designed to deorbit. Or as they run out of fuel and their orbits degrade, they don't necessarily fall into the planet, you know, fall back to Earth and burn up. Sometimes they just wander off into higher orbits or eccentric orbits. And that's now been realised. So if you're going to fly satellites to space now, you have to comply to deorbiting rules and you must undertake to have mm-hmm. once the fuel's reached a certain level you must undertake to deorbit the satellite so it burns up in the atmosphere so that it leaves no debris and um that has become a, a serious problem for example the space station i think it's three or four times this year alone they've actually had to go into safe you know, they had to go into i can't remember the word but it's like they have to stop whatever it is they're doing go into the safety areas which is the hardened parts of the space station mm-hmm and then wait for the debris to go past. Because when it goes past, it goes past at like, you know, 40 metres a second. Thousands yeah, of miles yeah, an like hour. Yeah. Thousands yeah. and thousands of really kilometres an hour. And, you know, even if it's only yeah. small, it still goes up with a very big explosion. Uh, and in some cases, they do have to manoeuvre the space station uh, to get out of the way of a larger p- or, or a risky piece of debris. And that's the most obvious example. But we're also seeing some satellites um, get impacted by debris and be come out of surface, which is statistically so unlikely as to happen, but increasingly apparently it's actually happening. So this is a real problem, I think. And, you know, if you're going to say, oh, I don't want to, uh, not yet, later, later when I'm broken out of business, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's push this problem yeah, that's down right. the line. Yes. Yeah. I think the challenge here is that, you know, if, you, if you've got a space company that's throwing stuff into orbit and then it goes out of business, who's deorbiting it? Right. Uh-huh. Uh, so what happens there? Right. There are startups in the space, however, who are actually putting together um, rockets and and uh, to to move around the Earth and actually collect the debris. But here's the thing that they haven't uh-huh. solved is who's going to pay them? <laughs> right. <laughs> because that's not going to be cheap. You know, putting a rocket into space with a fuel pipe with a pay with a you know uh, yeah. grappling arms that has to match orbits and then grapple onto something and then it has to put it in the hopper and then what deorbit eject it? I don't know, but you know. There's a, you know, that's a whole space program right there in, in who's going to pay for that. So, uh, again, one of these political moves that over time might bear fruit if they can sustain their focus for long enough. Yeah. Uh, just to wrap this up, there are currently almost 5,000 satellites in orbit, most in low Earth orbit. Uh, the register notes that Starlink satellites apparently are showing up in about a fifth of the images being taken by a California-based space telescope, just to give you a sense of how crowded it's getting up there. Yeah, it is really bad. I do follow a bunch of space accounts to try and keep up to date with what's happening up there, and they're complaining not just about the astronomy piece, both professional and amateur astronomers, but the people who mm-hmm. track the space debris, it's a struggle, right? There is a lot of satellites being thrown up by China and the US and Europe. You know, the the French, you know, the Ariane launch program is launching satellites at a frenetic race, at a frenetic pace, and mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting to see how this works out over time. Yeah. All right. So we're going to wrap up by pointing you to what I found to be a charming article about a person running a small but profitable business in floppy disks. Uh, Floppydisk.com has a disk duplication service. It also sells blank floppies to the few companies that still use them, which apparently includes uh, medical equipment, industrial manufacturing, and a little frightening 
the avionics systems on some older aircraft. Yeah, it's, isn't it a great story? This guy actually... It's a great like, story. <laughs> I, I, just, I bought a whole bunch. He said, what do you say? He bought 50 million discs at some point. And uh, he still mm-hmm. goes around and... And he's just kind of running down the the, the rest of that. That's right. And yeah. he sells them for, I imagine, for, you know, whatever. And he gets picks up secondhand stuff when he can find it and tests them and validates them and then sends them out. Um, although I did notice um, he's saying that he sells them to things like avionics, but I've also heard you can now get a special type of floppy drive which connects to a USB, and it looks like a floppy drive and you insert it like a floppy drive, but it's actually USB connected. <laughs> so there there are attempts to try and fix this, but I imagine there are other people out there who just say, you know, I just use this computer, this 25-year-old laptop running MS-DOS, and if I <laughs> stick this, I do this, the floppy comes out, right. I put this in the plane and the firmware gets uploaded or something. So I... It just right. goes to show you that old tech never dies. It just sort of stumbles on and, and it it stops getting – I have a pet theory that once something stops having marketing dollars spent on it, it actually gets a lot of money. It gets very profitable. It was, <laughs> That's Yeah, he makes a, a point saying that, you know, as uh, the number of floppy disk manufacturers go down, you know, and he becomes the, the sort of the last shop standing, his profits have mm. gone up. So, you know, if you can <laughs> – if you can time it right, you know, you can sort of be the last one standing and, and, and do all yeah, right for yourself. Right. I also will note for our listeners, um, if you happen to have a bunch of floppies sitting around and you don't just want to chuck them in the landfill, uh, you can also, he does recycle floppy disks too from yeah. consumers. So if you got a bunch and you don't want to just throw them away, check out floppydisk.com and, and see what can happen. Well, he's saying here in the last 10 years, they've gone from 10 cents to, and now he can sell a 720K double density disk for $2. So... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good markup. <laughs> buggy whips. So this is the old buggy whip story, you know, when cars <laughs> came to right. replace horse and carts, the buggy whip manufacturers got more and more profitable, but at the end they were out of business. And he seems to be happy enough with yeah. his life, so it's a good choice. Maybe that's the way you want to end your, you know, spend the last few years of your career doing something that's fading out and uh, have a nice time doing it. Yeah, really recommend it. Check it out. Uh, the link's in the show notes if you want to read it. Uh, that does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored conversation with Palo Alto Networks on their new AOPS capabilities in their Prisma and SD-WAN product. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk with Palo Alto Networks about the latest AIOps features for SD-WAN. AIOps is a broad term for software that analyzes network data and then makes recommendations on issues and problems that it can see from the data that's been collected. This proactive capability has become somewhat necessary as the complexity of WAN networks in particular, underlays, overlays, encryption, you're going on-prem, you're going off-prem, you've got remote working, you might have integrated VPNs, you might be doing content scanning, you might have filters, you might have all threat detection engines, you might be going through a, 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 a SASE cloud product, all that complexity adds up into a whole lot more stuff that you need to do as a network engineer. The old days of simple OSPF routing are long behind us and the new environment's really difficult. And that's where tools like AIOps comes in to help you keep that under control. So today we're talking with Bill Pruitt. He's a senior product manager at Palo Alto Networks and he's going to be talking about how Palo Alto Networks AIOps builds on the existing capabilities that's in the product today and then how AIOps can help you with an easier work life. So Bill, let's get started with talking about how the Network Insight products work, which is where you are today and how we build on that. So what's Network Insights? 
Yeah, so Network Insights basically takes what we built over the past couple of years and adds another layer of analysis on top of it. So previously, we focused on how can we reduce the noise through event correlation and event management, identifying flapping conditions and things like that. Um, but now we're kind of taking some uh, really big steps to do some proactive analysis outside of just an event. So event, uh, Network Insights, um, they really operate on the axiom that you know we use internally which is you know day one is only one day but day two is forever so we hmm. we take all of these things that we would normally do as a network administrator uh, capacity planning we pay big huge teams of people to do these things as network operators and we perform those tasks automatically and i'll give you some examples of things that we're doing that are really just uh, for me i mean i used to be a network operator right so these things i spent a lot amount of time doing between me and my team um, some things that we're doing are, for example, looking across every single circuit in the network proactively mm. week in, week out to identify quite a few different conditions, up to five of them mm. on a given circuit. And what we did is we took a baseline of the hundreds of thousands of circuits that we have access to the data of in our mm. system. And we mm. said, how do we expect a circuit to perform? Specifically, let's talk about latency and loss. So if you look at latency and loss, uh, two you know, conditions that plague uh, any particular you know, circuit or connection as, as those things get out of spec, um, we said, you know, we expect latency and loss to increase as load increases a marginal amount. But when a circuit deviates from that amount, uh, that, that, that prescribed model that we've trained, then we identify that as a condition where the circuit has excessive latency and or excessive loss. And we give right. you all so the I supporting call that a data. So, you know, when yes, we talk about yeah. blackouts and, you know, systems working, then you have an electricity blackout, but you can also have a brownout. And that's when you run out of bandwidth. Maybe the backbone is congested or latency is increasing for some reason, usually because of backbone congestion. And that's very hard to monitor for unless you're actually doing some sort of application. We'll talk more about um, digital experience monitoring, like the Prisma uh, digital experiencing monitoring at the end here. But that brownout is the same for everybody because it's this, it's roughly the same condition for all networking because everybody's using the same networks across the same providers. You can, and you know, a brownout is the same as, all over the world, you know, in any network, right? Absolutely. Yeah, those happen. Um, and they're difficult to troubleshoot. I mean, I've spent yeah. days and hours and, you know, weeks troubleshooting these things. Um, they're terribly difficult. So why can't we ask the question, why can't we give these things to the customer on a silver platter, right? These yeah. pop up as a notification, hey, this circuit or these set of circuits is having th these problems. Mm. Now, could I guess how this is, how is this different than from what I would normally be getting from an SD-WAN device, which is supposed to be monitoring, you know, my link performance anyway? What, what's the, the difference here? What, what makes it AI ops? What makes AI ops is that we're actually, we've taken all the data that we have and we've trained the models. And then the models, uh, the actual, the artificial intelligence piece looks at the trained model, and it, but it performs a historical analysis, go looking back several weeks for performance. So it's not just a right now condition. Mm -hmm. uh, these are things that it might occur over time, because let's be honest, we don't want to be notified when we have mm -hmm. a single blip in the network, or maybe it's only bad for a few minutes, um, and then it's good, right? Though That's noise. But when these things become chronic, that's when we need to know about them. We need to work with our carriers yeah. to troubleshoot the connections or increase bandwidth. I think it's also useful to point out that bad performance, say for an Azure hosted SaaS application or like or Salesforce, you know, or or some sort of help desk application is very different to an application that might be hosted in your own data center. And you actually need to build a baseline around 
those things. You can't just say, you know, 80% packet loss, 90% packet loss with this amount of latency and suddenly it's a problem. It's actually a variable. It's a, it's a mutable constant around that, right? It's not a fixed thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's all relative. I think is what you're yeah. trying to say. It's like it, yeah. it, it's all relative. So yeah, the 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 model has to be trained very specifically to identify those types of anomalies a hundred percent. And so what it sounds yeah. like I'm getting then is as opposed to just sort of in the immediate moment where the SD WAN could say, okay, maybe we should switch this flow to a different link because of performance issue X, I can over time see this link is having consistent problems and maybe I need to go talk to my provider and get something new or change my SLA or something. That's right. Yeah. So the, the SD-WAN system will obviously in real time react to those problems. This is really focused around that day two operations and making sure that all the underlying infrastructure, uh, including the transport, is working well. So what about other capabilities? I, I th there's a note here in our document about predictive circuit capacity exhaustion. Yes. Yeah. So um, in that first level, uh, first batch of insights that we did last fall, we actually introduced one called bandwidth upgrade recommended. And what that did was look at a historical analysis of, of a circuit performance. And basically, if it was redlining, you know, above a certain amount, then we would take that and say, you know what, you should probably consider a bandwidth upgrade. Here's the times today this occurs. Here's all the apps and the IPs that are causing it, but you may want to consider an upgrade. We're not taking that to the next level this summer by looking at it from predictive standpoint. So no longer is it going to be like historical analysis. Yes, that trains the model, but it'll be predictive that says, hey, in two, three, four weeks, based upon your current trend, you're likely to be hitting bandwidth caps at this circuit in the site. Mm. And you'll be able to know. Now, this uh, predictive capacity and all of this AI ops actually builds off the visibility tooling that's actually in the product today. You've already got quite a, a wide suite in the SD-WAN portfolio of you know, monitoring the network, tracking the bandwidth, asset management, configuration management, and that all runs as a cloud-hosted service that you can see it. This is all services that build on what I thought of as like table stakes for SD-WAN. This isn't like a simple thing. These are complex new tools. Absolutely. Yeah. And th those tools, uh, as we discussed before, that gives you a, a, just a, an unprecedented amount of data that we never had, we never had operating our network historically. Um, mm -hmm. And what we're trying to help the customer do um, is make sense of all that data and really mm -hmm. bubble those problems up to the top so they don't have to sift through it manually, even though they can. That's great. And it's all really rich and helps them, you know, look through the historical analysis themselves. We want to give it yeah. to them automatically. Yeah, because I'm I'm thinking of in the Palo Alto Networks SD-WAN tooling, you get things like heat, wap, heat maps and WAN utilization charts for sure, but you actually get them in really quite complex graphics. Like you have the, the utilization quadrant report, which actually maps against maps the utilization against the the land to land utilization so there's a quality versus utilization map and some of that's really sophisticated but that's all rather passive this is much more predictive and it's saying instead of reacting and you go and have a look at hotspot reports and you say where are the problems in the network because there's a problem this is we're telling you what's going to happen before it happens it's, it's not totally that but it's heading in that direction that's right. Yeah, I think of it of uh, like Maslow's hierarchy uh, for networking, right? So we'll call it Greg's hierarchy for networking. Um, we're we're up there at the self-actualization level of networking, right? Where we're providing uh, just an extreme amount of value built upon all these other foundational layers of the technology. So this predictive notion means that, you know, say I open a new branch or a new retail site and it's sort of, you know, standard operating procedures to provision X amount of bandwidth. But if this retail site is particularly popular, I can see, you know, the bandwidth needs or the consumption increasing over time. And before customers have a bad experience, maybe I can upgrade that circuit to prevent that. That's exactly the point. 
Exactly. Is to, to give the administrator, the operator time to go and upgrade the capacity if they need to before it becomes a problem. So let's move on to talking about autonomous digital experience management. Now, digital experience managing is where you actually monitor the user experience rather than or, or monitor the, the, the application experience uh, via a separate process. Instead of monitoring the network, you're monitoring for it using probes or tools in the network. Now, you've had Prisma autonomous digital experience and the tool for a while, but this is being extended. Yeah, so so if you think about it, uh, we've all seen that movie Vantage Point, where you've got you know several different versions of a story depending on the perspective, um, and all of those different aspects add up to a really complete view of an event that happened. So the Prisma ADEM solution is not just monitoring from one particular position in the network. It monitors on the client side uh, from a GP client, no matter where you're at. It, the, we also have the agents embedded to Prisma SD-WAN um, and also inside of the Prisma Access Cloud. So it's really from end to end, the complete solution. We have monitoring from every single component. And we take all that data that we're mm. gathering from every single perspective, and then we combine that together in our cloud to provide that true end-to-end -end view of, of the application health. And yep. what this does is, you know, it, it, to your point, we're now monitoring up at the application layer. So we're running a series of probes in addition to monitoring real user traffic to say, for these key applications, what is my performance? Mm -hmm. um, so that's one aspect. You can look at it, but then we actually break it down into something what we call segment-wise insights. And this looks at it and takes all that data and merges it together and says, okay, in a hop by hop fashion, uh, starting all the way from the client PC, their laptop and processes on that, all the way through to the far end where traffic comes out of the security cloud, that what is my experience all the way from there into the actual end application. So we, we break all of that down, yeah. you can see it incredible detail hop by hop at the network and application layer to break down what is happening on that application. Yeah, because this isn't just, you know, taking flow data from the network or taking statistics from the, the SD-WAN edge device. These are actually agents that can be installed on devices, but also on user laptops and, and devices. And then you configure probes to actually monitor independent of the network. And that gives you a completely different view of the experience rather than a view of the performance of it. I know there's some semantics there, but that's the idea, or is it not? That's right. Yeah, we, we want to monitor the user experience. So uh, network performance is great. Um, and you know we, we, that's great information to have. But then when you up-level it, what am I really trying to do with a network? I'm trying to ensure a user experience. So now that I have this proactive 24 hours a day visibility uh, from uh, across the entire set of WAN infrastructure, WAN and security infrastructure, I've got the ability to, to, to measure, carefully measure, uh, and quantify that user experience from end to end. And that's really critical in this now, you know, distributed work environment where a user could be on a home network where the problem maybe is their, you know, their Wi-Fi or their router, or it's on a local ISP or it's on a backbone. And unless you're measuring each of those segments, when the user says, hey, the network is slow, you don't really know what that means. Hmm. That's Especially right. Especially if they're accessing it, a SaaS service like Salesforce or right. Microsoft Office. How do you measure that? You know, right. And that and that goes back to the the mean time to innocence for the network operator. Right. We're <laughs> we're at the bottom of the OSI model, so I always like to say things roll downhill to us. So now we have all of the tools uh, to yes. be able to prove ourselves innocent. Right. Um, yeah. And one of our, our 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 customers actually coined that term, mean time to innocence. Yeah, <laughs> I've been using it on and off for a few years. It's mm -hmm. also a mean time to denial. It's not the there network. you go. 
<laughs> so another one that I've heard. So I'm curious what kind of information I can get at, on the endpoint. Can, can I look at, you know, the, the wireless signal strength? Can I look at processes on the actual device that may be affecting, you know, CPU or memory? The answer is yes, all the above. Um, the the agent on the when you actually look at it from the client perspective monitors the the Wi-Fi RSSI and SNR. Uh, it monitors all of the the processes and their health that could be affecting you know CPU memory overhead on that client. Uh, all those things uh, can impact the user experience, and we give you the tools to be able to figure out where in the chain that it's being impacted. Uh, I, I liked how SD WAN uh, in the early days we had so many problems with people saying, oh, we couldn't possibly run SD-WAN overlays. And of course, the challenge there was how to get visibility into the overlay. What's the performance of the user application? What's the performance of, you know, that how, how do we know it works, right? And of course, the answer was you didn't know how it worked before. So why would this be any different? <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but now- Things have come a long got, way. Things have come a long way. That the, the intelligence we've got from cloud-hosted applications and from these very powerful edge devices that gives us application-grade visibility and combining that with digital experience tools, the dem, you know, the uh, it just changes the way we see applications and getting visibility telemetry from the network. That's really what this is about, I think. I agree, hundred percent. It you know the obviously the the world has has changed, um, mm -hmm. and our our goal as the Prisma SASE business unit is to provide the tools uh, and the capabilities necessary to provide the you know and a consistent end user experience, no matter mm -hmm. where they're consuming the services they need, whether it be a coffee and shop, uh, in the yeah. office, um, in in the corporate headquarters, no matter where it's at. And do remember that Palo Alto does actually provide a whole SASE solution. So there's all, all the security that you want there, all the SD-WAN features that you want. There's even integration with a wide range of other tools, which we've talked about in lots of other shows on the Packet Pushes Network. So if you want to find out more about those, contact Palo Alto Networks to talk about those or go and do a search for them on our website. You'll be able to get more on that. Well, unfortunately, that's all that we have time for today. Thanks very much to Bill for coming on talking about Palo Alto Networks and the new features around AI ops using machine learning and artificial intelligence to improve the performance of your of your job. No, no, it doesn't improve the network. It improves your job because you know what's happening. And also talking a little bit about the Prisma Autonomous Digital Experience Management, which does the experience monitoring. It has been extended since our previous conversations. And thanks to Palo Alto Networks for sponsoring. Without them, we couldn't be here. And remember that there are many, many more fine free technical podcasts just like this on our community blog at packetpushes.net. You can follow us on Twitter as at Packet Pushes. Find us on LinkedIn. And if you've got the time, please rate us on your favorite podcast tool because that helps us stay around. And last but never ever least, remember that too much tech networking would never be enough.